Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clutch. This is Marianne Russo. Thank you for joining us tonight. Tonight we are continuing our series with Dr. Deborah Serrani, Depression in Children. Seeing your child suffer in any way is a harrowing experience for any parent, and mental illness in children can be particularly draining. Um, it's such a mysterious um, illness, illnesses, and the issues of diagnosis um, are very difficult, um, you know, especially in identifying mental illness in young children. Depression in Your Child, um, written by Dr. Sarani, um, gives parents and caregivers a really unique understanding of pediatric depression with its causes, its symptoms, and its treatments. Um, and Dr. Serrani weaves her own personal experience um, of being a depressed child along with her clinical experience in the book. And, um, you know, tonight we're going to be continuing the series. On um, the first um, part of the series, we discussed um, the presentations, the differences in presentations in children and teens from adults, the different approaches, um, the red flags, and, um, you know, different options and strategies to help these children overcome this devastating illness. And we're going to be continuing tonight with part two. We're going to be discussing the 10 myths surrounding child depression. And next week, uh, we're going to be finishing up the series with um, seven things children need to know about depression, which is really just fabulous. So if you missed the first part of the series, you can go to our website and there is a blog. And on the blog, all three interviews will be listed list, uh, listed, so you can listen. And now I'd like to introduce and welcome back Dr. Sarani. How are you? Um, great tonight, Mary, and thanks again for inviting me back. Oh, you're so welcome. You know, as I said in the first um, episode, this is something I've really wanted to delve into over the past four years, and I'm so happy you can be joining us because it's so misunderstood. Um, And, you know, as we're going to be talking about tonight, there are a lot of myths surrounding um, child depression. So why don't we jump right into it? You have um, a writing, uh, which I found, and uh, which prompted this interview. And uh, we're going to go straight through because they're really just, you know, I think people don't think about these these myths when they think of about children. So the first myth is babies and children cannot be diagnosed with depression. Right. That's actually one of the biggest misconceptions about depression. Uh, In fact, we know that babies and children do indeed struggle with depression. A long time ago, it was never thought that children had the capacity, the cognitive understanding, or the emotional experience to be depressed. But what research shows us is that one out of four babies is born with depression. 4% of preschool-aged children struggle with a depressive disorder. 5% of school-aged children, that's children like 10 years old and up, uh, struggle with depression. And 11% of teens meet the criteria for major depressive episodes. So this is a very real thing, and it's not something that, um, you know, no longer carries with it a myth. And I love that, um, you know, you're giving the opportunity to shed some light on this tonight. You know, I think one of the things that um, is confusing for parents is onset. Um, As you said, there are some children that, you know, are infants and toddlers that um, depression is apparent, and then there are other children that have a later onset. So does onset have any effect on um, this being a true depression, a clinical depression? Uh, Age of onset is actually one of the most important predictors of later disorders. So the earlier the age of onset, the worse a disorder generally is. So this is why it's 
so vital for parents and caregivers to learn what to look for in in any chronic illness, but with depression, yes, onset is kind of slippery and tricky to detect in toddlers or preschoolers because, you know, they tend to be moody and irritable and, you know, they're these little tiny tiny people, you know, buzzing about a great deal of their day. They don't articulate their feelings very well. Uh, we tend to be more likely to see depression in teenagers, you know, because they kind of talk about it. But onset is a very vital key, and this is why it's so great that we can talk about what to look for at each stage of development so we can get in there sooner and derail the trajectory of a disorder. Because like I said, early onset tends to be a worse prognosis for, for depression. So a child who presents, you know, at 18 months, or, or two years old with depression, and I've seen this, it, it's very, very serious because it's, it's initially showing at such a young age that if we miss those signs, it roots itself more deeply in a child and makes it harder to shake off. It affects every aspect of their lives, learning, relationships, everything. Um, you know, mm-hmm. what you mentioned before um, what to look for. I just want listeners to know that if you listen to the first interview, we discussed that. We discussed the red flags. We, we discussed the onset. We discussed a lot of things. So you can get all of that information. We don't want you to think we're glossing over that um, in the first interview. Um, the second myth that you have is really interesting because it just so happens that Sunday, um, that that's the interview that we did, was finding um, the right mental health care professional um, and the difficulty some parents have when they speak to their pediatrician and the pediatrician pretty much just dismisses it. So the second myth you have is my pediatrician says my child's moodiness is just a phase and not to worry. Mm. I hear this so often from parents who come in after knowing that you know, in their own instincts, there, there's been something going on with their child. But because a pediatrician or a physician said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, they get to the mental health practitioner later rather than sooner. You know, the unfortunate thing in healthcare nowadays is that many of the first-line professionals, meaning pediatricians or physicians, are so overloaded in patient care that sometimes they don't A, have the time to really evaluate appropriately what might be going on with their little patient. And B, they don't necessarily have the time to go to continuing ed classes, learn what the newest research is about pediatric depression. So it's almost as if this is a far more common issue where pediatricians will tell parents, You know, toddlers are supposed to be irritable. Uh, School-aged children, when they begin school, are supposed to be sad and depressed because they're not with their parents and it's not playtime anymore. But this is a real red flag for parents. If you hear from a a health professional that this is such a, a stage or a phase that's going to pass, please get a second opinion. Uh, it's so important to trust your own instincts as a parent. And, you know, sometimes we know more than some of the health pr- professionals that we work with. And this team approach is very, very helpful in making sure you find the right treatments and the right avenues for your child. Absolutely. You know, and as we discussed on the show, you know, sometimes parents look at this and it's a roadblock and you cannot let it be a roadblock because this is not something that you can allow yourself to be intimidated um, about. That's, and that's a great point, Marianne. You're right. It should never be a roadblock. That's such a great thing to, to, to encourage parents to feel. Right. And, you know, the frustration, you know, if you're frustrated that, you know, your pediatrician either doesn't understand or um, doesn't see what you're seeing, um, you know, a lot of people that are listening live in very rural areas and and, you know, mm. your child does go to school, and a school does have a school psychologist. And um, we had a mental health connoisseur on who matches families with um, mental health care providers. And one of the things she said was that, you know, sometimes parents don't can't afford it. Um, sometimes right. parents don't. don't have the access. And what she recommended was spend the money for a consult if you need to and have also, that person be a point, a point person. I also think uh, another alternative is for anybody in a rural location, I don't care what state you live in, there's a university nearby, whether it's 20 miles, 50 miles, or 100 miles, and they, they always have a psychology department or a psychiatry department, 
And believe it or not, you can pick up the phone if you don't have Internet access, and you can call the departments directly. Often they have a team of experts that will be happy to evaluate at, at lower cost, sometimes at no cost. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have evaluation uh, possibilities, they're a great resource to help you find who is available in your state to help you. So I love the idea of, you know, having a point person, as the mental health connoisseur suggested, but I don't want to let the university link be something that gets overlooked. So uh, I always tell parents that. That's what we had said. You know, any any um, hospital uh, will have recommendations right. for you. That's NAMI, right. Um, right. you know, contact NAMI. They, they'll help you. And there's usually a sliding scale. So, I mean, listen, I, I, I'm the first to say it. The You know, the state of mental health care in our nation is a national disgrace. But there is help there, and you have to be persistent, and you have to get it. Call your insurance company. Um, they'll give you names just as well. Right. But I want to move on because your next myth I love and you say good parents can always detect if their child is depressed. You know, this came from my own experiences of uh, being a young girl who was devastatingly depressed. And I had good parents. I had parents who were doting and caring and loving, um, and they didn't know I was depressed. And I often get asked this question, and I thought that it it was something worth exploring. And the research actually supports what I lived through and what this myth talks about, which is that children have a way of what's called masking their depression. Because they don't understand the textures of sadness or their negative thinking or the helplessness or the hopelessness they feel, they kind kind of push it back within them. And you'd never know that they were depressed. Like I was a child who smiled a lot. Yes, I was tired. Yes, I was sad. Yes, I had moments and bouts of irritability and hopelessness. But nobody would have ever known it. And so it's important for parents not to feel guilty or a sense of shame if they're at a a professional's office and they're told your child has pediatric depression. Because some parents feel, how come I didn't see it? You know, why, why did I miss it? Am I not a good parent? Depression is a very slippery illness in young children. That's why as adults, we have the ability to express what we think and feel. It's easier for us to detect any kind of illness when we're older. But good parents can miss these clues. And the important thing is to not let it throw you and not let it shame you. Oh, I love that. I mean, because I think that, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned shame because, you know, some parents... um, you know, start with the blame game and, you know, whose mm. fault is it? Is it my fault? And it isn't, doesn't have to be anybody's fault. But, you know, you have to first wipe out the stigma of mental illness and look at this as an illness because that's what it is. Um, mm. You know, and another thing is I think it's probably very scary for children, young children especially, and, and teens because it's so irrational at times. They don't have anything to be depressed about. It must be very right. frightening. Right, and because there's no dots to connect to, kids will say, well, you know, okay, you know, everybody else must feel like this. This is the way life must be, so, you know, I'll go out, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll try and live as best as I can with it. But that's when, you know, depression is in its mildest form, when it snags you and pulls you down. Most parents can definitely see, you know, the seriousness of the disorder. But it's important for parents not to, like you said, fall into the blame game. This is a tricky illness, and professionals miss it. Right. I'm so glad you're here. As I'm listening to you, I'm just saying, I mean, nobody has the perspective that you have. Uh-huh. Um, so I am just listening to you, and I'm just like, oh, I, I know that you're going to help so many children and parents. Um, and the next thing I want to talk about is that, you know, children, when people think of children and young teens, we think of these really resilient human beings. And it's true. They are very resilient. But one of the myths you have is that pediatric depression will go away on its own. Mm. So many people think that, you know, um, childhood disorders just kind of are stages and phases or life experiences that kids have to master or work through. And then, you know, they kind of emerge on, on the other side of that tunnel with, like you said, this resiliency or character strength. But what research tells us is that mental health illnesses don't go away. What happens is most people who can kind of work with it 
are in what we call a state of recovery. You know, you recover from it, you, you learn to live with it. But for those who still struggle, it kind of morphs into a lifelong struggle. So it's not something that's going to go away on its own. You know, yes, teenagers can be moody by nature. And, you know, usually when you emerge from your adolescence into young adulthood, you kind of lose some of that chip on your shoulder, you know, rolling your eyes at your parents kind of stuff. But if you have a depressive disorder as a teen, it's not going to go away. And it's very important for anybody listening out there that mental health issues are not something that can be willed away or a light switch goes off. It's like saying your diabetes stops. You know, it just kind of recovers on its own. It's a very tricky thing, mental health issues and mental illness. Um, You know, I still think in this, you know, the century that we're in, there's still so much stigma and misinformation out there. And, you know, radio shows like yours and the website that, that the Coffee Clutch provides is enormous in helping to educate and reach other people. So it's great that we have the ability to do this, but we still got a ways to go. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the worst things a parent can do is um, to tell a child, snap out of it or, you know, mm. go, why don't you go with your friends? Because, um, you know, you don't want to minimize this um, for the kids right. either. Right. Um, you know, the next myth that you have is really a very important one because I think that it is confusing, and I think parents don't know how to approach this um, from, you know, parent to child. Um, and you say that talking about depression gives kids ideas and actually makes things worse is a myth. Right. Right, the, the myth that, you know, if we talk about depression, we're going to make kids depressed. The myth that if we talk about suicide, we're going to have kids, you know, think about suicide. And the research shows that that's actually not true. When we talk about depression or suicide, we actually help children identify what they may or may not be experiencing. And what that does is it actually takes away the anxiety that underlies all illness. When you worry that you're struggling with A, B, or C, it will make your symptoms of A, B, or C become more heightened. So when we talk about things, we take the fear away, we take the anxiety away, and we actually end up reducing the depressive symptoms. So support and encouragement and open communication are not just meaningful things for parents to have with their child. It actually is a a part of a treatment where when you talk about things, you actually help the symptoms become reduced. And that's such an important thing for kids to know that this is not a scary thing to talk about, you know, that we care about you, we love you, and this is what this open communication is for. So hiding and not talking about it creates more guilt and shame and worry. Talking about it takes all that away. Absolutely, and you know, you mentioned suicide, which we're going to talk about now. Um, you know, and one of the things that we discussed last time, but I'm definitely going to reiterate, is that if you have a child that is seems depressed, um, and you're hearing them say, "I just wish I was dead," you know, "I want to die," "I don't want to live anymore," you need to act. You need mm-hmm. to, you know, you need to act on the side of error with caution. Um, rather than have um, a tragedy. So, you know, the next um, myth is the risk of suicide for children is greatly exaggerated. Yeah, it's uh, suicide is the third leading cause of death in teenagers from 15 to 24. And in school-age children, that's ages 5 to 14, it's the sixth leading cause of death. This is you know, uh, 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 just above cancer and diabetes and and heart issues and and accidents, suicide is actually on the list of deaths for children. And suicide is a preventable death. And I often use that phrase because it's something that if we can detect early with symptoms, we can interrupt it. So suicide is a very, very high-risk piece of depression. Anybody who has a mental illness is significantly prone to depression. Yes. But those who have depression are more likely to commit and die by suicide than any other uh, category. So this is something we cannot take as a casual response. Parents, teachers, professionals, 
if you hear any child talking about, you know, maybe you'd be better off without me, or I want to sleep all day. Or they want to give their toys away to people. Right. Any of those, you know, telltale signs always act in an urgent emergency response style. I'd rather be wrong than to feel great shame and awful, horrible feelings of why didn't I do more. And, you know, to combine the two um, myths, uh, where was it, myth five and six, you know, parents need to be... um, to exert their, you know, parental authority and say to the children and ask the children, do you ever have thoughts of hurting yourself? That's right. Um, if you have a child that's depressed, you need to ask them, do you ever think of hurting yourself? You know, do you, mm-hmm. because they need to know they can come to you if they're right. feeling, it, if they're it, it thinking that. It doesn't become a taboo subject. It doesn't Absolutely. become, I'm going to scare mommy or daddy with my thoughts. It becomes, no, I can talk about this because, you know, quite often many people who are depressed do think these thoughts. So right. we, we allow the door to be open and we allow the children to come to us because it, it is an overwhelming urge sometimes for some children. And, it, and I can't say this with enough emphasis. It's a preventable death. And the and more also, we can do. No, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say the more we can do to educate children and parents, the lower the suicide rates will be. Right. And it's also important for children and teens. And I wish they, I wish they discussed this more in school. Um, to have a contact person. It, it, just because your child doesn't feel they can come to you does not mean that you're a bad parent. But some children just don't have that um, ability. Um, right. They're not comfortable with it. So they should have a, a person, an adult in their lives, um, you know, a relative, a teacher, right. a mm-hmm. therapist, a pediatrician, somebody that they know. If you know, you can say, listen, if you don't want to talk to me, who would you be comfortable talking to? Perfect. So that you know that there's always somebody other than yourself um, that right. they feel that they can go to. Right. Um, a, tr- now, most... a true lifeline. A true lifeline. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, it's been a very bleak um, you know, picture we've painted here. But there is help, and antidepressants are there. And they, you know, there's the myth that antidepressants um, can push a child into more suicidal thinking. But one of the myths is that antidepressants will ch- change a child's personality. Um, you know, there are a lot of talk therapies out there, and I want to just emphasize that talk therapy is always the first approach with any type of serious depressive disorder when it comes to children. We want medication to be a last resort. But if indeed you find yourself as a parent considering the use of antidepressant medication, it is important to know that there's this urban myth that, oh my God, you know, don't, don't put your child on antidepressants. It's going to change your child's personality. And that's not true. Medication should never, ever dull a child's uh, sparkle or who they are as a person. What the antidepressant will do is it will address the mood disorder that's operating. It should change only the symptoms of depression and the, the physical symptoms of depression like fatigue and irritability and cognitive um, difficulties concentrating cognitively. That's what the medicine does. And if the medicine... And if you see in the medicine kind of maybe changing how you see your child, that's a tip-off that the dosage may be too high. Mm-hmm. So any time you're working with any medication, medication should never shift how your child is, you know, at their core. And if they are looking a little bit different or, or acting a little bit differently, that's, that's when you should go to the prescribing physician and say, can we check the dose? Right, right, because some children are micro-responders, so, um, you know, a very tiny dose, especially if they have comorbidity with, say, Asperger's or other type Mm -hmm. of um, disorders. But, you know, one thing I want to say is that I I just want parents to know that, yes, these medications can be life-saving. They can, you know, push the dark clouds away, but they always really need to be used in combination with therapy because the goal isn't to be lifelong medication. Some children will need it, Um, but there is always, you're always going to need to combine medication with some form of talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did did want to mention, though, that there are some classes of medication, neuroleptics, um, that are truly life-saving. 
um, for some children and teens. They can have cognitive dulling, but it shouldn't change their personality, but they can have some effect on um, cognitive um, Right, behavior. right. The, nor- the neuroleptics can do that. But again, you know, it's just the, the message that I guess what we're both trying to share is that parents should be um, always looking and trusting what they see and think, mm-hmm. and then to be active with it. Go to your team uh, that you're working with and say, you know, could we play with the dose? Could we lower it? Could we change the time of day? Could that offset some of the side effects? So, you know, really, medication is a scary thing when you don't know or have the experience of working with it. But once you are there working with it, you can see, you know, if you're active and you participate and you're empowered, you can be, it can be a very helpful piece to treatment. And, you know, I I always tell parents, you have a whole new career. You are now a medical (laughs) historian. You are a medical historian, um, you're a psychologist, you're a psychiatrist, you're a pharmacist. Um, But what I tell parents to do, two things. If your child starts medication, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to bookmark a drug interaction checker on your computer. Mm -hmm. Um, And no matter if they take over the counter, whatever they take, you put it in and you know if there's any interactions. But more importantly is you're going to buy a journal. You can buy a a dollar store um, Mm, notebook. And every day, just one sentence especially when they're starting medications, and you list the dosage, you list the brands, whether it's generic, whatever. Mm. And because you're going to be surprised um, six months from now when there needs to be a change, how you forgot <laughs> what That's happened. Right. So, you know, it, it's really important. But, you know, one thing I want to stress is myth number eight, which is once a child starts antidepressants, he's on it for the rest of his life. Yeah, that's, that's another fallacy that many people uh you know, talk about and share even, you know, you, you see this in the news and you see this at the bus stop. It's just, an, it's just a myth that has a life of its own that, oh, no, once you start taking this pill, you'll never come off of it. And that's actually not what we want. We want to see um, people do well without the medication. We want the medication in a way to kind of help a child lift some of the depressive symptoms so he or she can learn the tools that talk therapy will teach them. Most children will be on medication. It's recommended for a year. It takes a while for it to come into the central nervous system and be absorbed appropriately, which is good because we don't want, you know, a pill to knock somebody, you know, on the head like an anvil. We want it to slowly be adjusted to a young person's body. And then once you reach a level of recovery and remission, you slowly come off of it. Uh, But a year's worth of time is often what I tell parents to make the commitment of saying, we're going to try this for a year, not for three months or six months. You won't get the full benefit of it. So, and when you come off of the meds, um, you know, most of the children that I work with, I'd say about a third, come off very well and they fly on their own. And it's a wonderful thing to see. Absolutely. The next myth is when a depressed child refuses help, there's nothing a parent can do. Sometimes, you know, with teenagers particularly, they'll be like, I don't want to go talk to a therapist or I'm not seeing a shrink. Or they may just be so frightened or shy and don't have the ability on their own to say, you know, okay, I'll go or give it a whirl. It doesn't mean that parents have nothing else they can do. I work with many couples who come in to learn how to deal with their child's pediatric depression, even though their child won't. So it's important for parents to know that you can learn through going to a specialist how to deal with your child, the things that maybe you can be kind of like a pseudo-therapist to your child, and, and maybe you can teach your child through therapy that you're learning the very things that he or she would have learned if, if they came to um, a, a session. And what's also important is if your child is reluctant to go for, for therapy and if you're worried that things are, are getting serious or escalating to the point of a life-threatening suicide, do not hesitate to take your child to the emergency room. They're trained for issues like this. Or contact a family member and say, can you help me bring Sally or Johnny to the hospital? And lastly, 
if those don't work and you find that it's just too overwhelming for you to bring your child to the hospital, calling the local police is something that I highly recommend. I've had the police come to my office from time to time to help a young child get to the hospital or a teenager and their family get to the hospital. The police officers like calls like this. For them, this is um, an experience where they can actually do a lot of positive connection and, and true helpfulness in their job. So there's always something a parent can do if a child is resistant to any type of intervention. Absolutely. And one of the things that I recommend parents do is find out what um, in your state is the age of majority. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's that catch-22 when your child is now an adult that you do not make decisions for them. And I recommend that when your child is turning on that birthday, the age of majority, you have them sign a mental health care proxy. Mm, um, which gives idea. you permission to help with decisions and allows doctors to talk to you. Um, and, you know, most times that will happen, but if the, the teen now is 18 years old and they say, I don't want you speaking to the children, there are HIPAA laws. So mm. this will give you, um, you know, they can always deny it, but this piece of paper really does help you um, have more access in a crisis situation. Um, the final myth is, you know, nowadays stigma for children and teens living with depression has declined. Uh, And this is one that actually breaks my heart. You think with all of the research that's been out there and all of the discoveries, scientific discoveries that we know about mental health, you'd think that there'd be less stigma. But uh, research through the American Psychological Association has shown that research is higher now than it has been in, in the 50s, since the 1950s. So even though there's, there's uh, more data out there, research regarding stigma shows that it actually is harder, and it, and it is hard for kids, uh, and it is hard for teens. They don't like to talk about you know, their issues or the medications they're taking. And it's, it's a very hard road we're going to have to drive. But, you know, the ways to redu- reduce stigma is to talk about, you know, po- people who have positive experiences. Like I love that Bruce Springsteen talked about, you know, needing mm-hmm. to be in, in psychotherapy for his depression. Or when uh, football players, a recent football player, um, was talking about how, you know, he would go for psychotherapy to help him with his depression during the season. So, you know, the more we can talk about ordinary people like you and me or high-profile high people like celebrities and athletes and musicians, the more we talk about depression or any mental illness, the more we kind of take the stigma out of it. Absolutely, for parents and um, for the kids. Um, mm. You know, we've come to the end of this interview. I'm so glad that you joined us. I mean, this was so informative, and with the three together, it's just going to help so many kids. Um, why don't you tell us before we go um, where people can find you, your website and your fabulous book? Uh, my website, you guys can find me at www.drdebrasirani.com. And my book, Depression and Your Child, is available in bookstores or online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, that kind of stuff. Okay. So, and, I well, thank you, and I thank you so much. Oh, please. I'm so thrilled you're here. Um, you can find us at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. Our interviews are all free to download on iTunes. Um, and we will see you next week where uh, Dr. Sarani and I are going to be discussing seven things a child with depression should know. And it's just fantastic. It's a lot of things that, trust me, you never even thought of before. So as I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent with us at The Coffee Clutch. Thank you for joining us. Good evening and welcome to The Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues 
should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Thank you for joining us again. I hate to see this end. We are now presenting part three of the series, Depression and Children, um, with Dr. Deborah Serrani. And she has just been incredible. I encourage you to listen to the first two interviews. In the first interview, we discussed presentations, um, treatments, um, differences in um, child teen and adult depression, and um, really just gave all the information on the red flags and what parents need to know about childhood depression. In the second interview, we discussed the um, 10 myths surrounding child depression, and when I tell you this interview can be life-saving, I am not exaggerating. Um, Dr. Sarani really went into the 10 myths that people um, think about childhood depression that, um, you know, if, if they get this wrong, it really could have um, a crisis on their hands. So I encourage you to listen to that interview. And tonight, um, for the third and final part of this series, we are going to be discussing seven things a child with depression should know. Before we do that, Dr. Deborah Sarani um, weaves her own personal experiences from suffering from child depression um, as well as being a um, psychologist treating children with depression in her book, um, Depression and Your Child, A Guide for Parents and Caregivers. It is outstanding. And um, I am just so thrilled to have her here. So, Dr. Serrani, thank you for coming back. Oh, Marianne, I'm so happy to be here. I hate to see it end. Um, as I said, the first, the first two interviews were just fabulous, and I'm sure that this one really is um, right up there because as I was reading and preparing for this, there were so many things that you don't even think of um, for a parent and a caregiver. They're so overwhelmed, first of all, to have to deal with a child that's going through this um, you know, devastating illness. And you have a list of seven things a child with depression should know. And the first one is understanding the texture of their feelings, that often depressed children need help understanding textures of their emotions. So what do you mean by this? Well, you know, we've, we've become a society that no longer looks in each other's eyes. And the generation of children that are growing up don't really understand the textures of certain kinds of facial cues, certain kinds of social experiences. And if you add an additional mental illness on top of that, it creates a perfect storm for children having what's called alexithymia. It's an inability to really understand what your feelings are, what the textures and contours of those feelings feel like, and as a result, if you don't know what you're feeling, you don't know what you're thinking, and if you don't know what you're thinking, you cannot kind of find a positive way out. So one of the most important things that I, I put at the top of my list when I work with children is to teach them what the textures of their feelings are. Remember that chart? Uh, it's a famous poster, and it has all these wonderful round faces on it. Uh, with different facial expressions. It might say sad, lonely, frustrated, irritable. Well, the reason why that's such a popular poster is because kids can't understand their own feelings. So if they look at this poster and they look at the facial expression and we show them that in a mirror or they get to see it in someone else, they become more targeted, more specific in understanding the feeling. So when kids will tell me things like, I'm feeling not so great today, or I'm feeling sad today, I want to know more. What does sad mean? And some, for some kids, sad means that they're really feeling lonely or that they're really feeling afraid or that they're really feeling something in addition to the sadness. So a depressed child needs to become a master at knowing what they think and feel. 
Yeah, and, you know, as adults, it's difficult to get in touch with, you know, true emotions. Um, You know, so for a child, you know, it can really be difficult. And, you know, children, I guess, and adults, too, oftentimes, um, you know, present depression as irritability or anger um, or anxiety. So it's so hard for them. Well, talk therapy is well known for for taking alexithymia, this phrase that, you know, you're going to see a lot a lot about in the news and and in print, um, and and really teaching the the lifestyle of understanding your own thoughts and feelings, and that's why talk therapy is so helpful because once you know what you're thinking and feeling, you can fix it, you can address it. But mm-hmm. you know, a lot of kids will sometimes say. I don't know. I don't know how I'm feeling or what is it that, you know, what makes you sad? I don't know. <laughs> you get a lot of that with young kids. And, right. and I think that's frustrating for parents because they think yes. they know. They think the kids yes. are withholding and the kids really don't know. That's right. And that's why it's so helpful for children to be aware that they may not understand their feelings. So then parents can, you know, kind of be a little softer on themselves because, you know, we as parents want to make sure that we're doing a good job. But sometimes, just as you said, Marianne, the kids don't know. So, you know, how are the parents going to know? Right. And, you know, that that brings us to... um Number two, which is how to spot negative thinking, um, you know, is teaching children to analyze their thinking into, you know, is this a good thought and how to change it into a more positive uh, place. So how right. would parents approach that? Well, pediatric depression has three areas. It's change in mood, change in physical symptoms, and this is the area that we're talking about, which is change in self-attitude. Most children have a very negative self-attitude, and it's not that they're negative on purpose. It's part of the illness. The frontal lobe of the brains don't get um, activated enough in a depressed state, so it doesn't allow you to do problem-solving and positive thinking. So when we teach children to stop, think, and reflect, is what they're saying to themselves a thumbs-up kind of statement like, you know, well, I studied really hard, and even though I failed the test, I can feel good about myself. Or are they saying, I'm stupid, it doesn't matter how hard I try, I can never get anything right. That's like a thumbs-down statement. So I try to help kids listen to how they're talking to themselves, because how you talk to yourself, truly research shows, changes your neurochemistry. So if you think positively, you will feel better. If you think negatively, you will feel worse. So it is a tough task, but it's not impossible. It requires parents to have a really good ear. You know, like when you listen to music, you find a song that you like. I tell Mm -hmm. parents, find a sentence that you like. And when your child says, oh, you know, I, I really did, I really had a good time with that. You did tell me more about that. Uh, or if you hear your child saying something negative, you don't you don't kind of discipline in a way where you say, you know, that's unacceptable. You may say as a parent, oh, what about thinking of it in this way and putting a positive right. spin on it? Right. So it's, well, no, how, how would, say, rumination um, play into this? You know, say you have a child who is constantly focused on their own distress, um, you know, and... They can't seem to get past that and stop the worry, which causes a depression. Um, You know, are there any ways, um, you know, what ways would you use to help them stop this? Well, there's, there's three main steps. The first is to heighten the obsessive circle. And what I mean by that is, and this is a great example you're bringing up, Marianne, when we get stuck in a negative loop, we have to become aware of the loop. So insight is the first thing we have to teach. We have to heighten the experience. So if you're a parent, you can say, oh, did you just hear what you just said? You know, you do it in a playful way, in a way that doesn't make it sound shaming because we want to increase a child's awareness. That's the first thing. The second thing is once we have the awareness that we're doing it, now we have to introduce the interruptive thought you know, where the brakes can be put on. And that's with, you know, oh, I'm so stupid, I can never do anything right, or why do I mm-hmm. even try? We, we have to teach the child to kind of fight each sentence. 
you know, why do I even try? Or why am I so stupid? Well, you're really not stupid with everything. And why do you try? Because you hope that at some point you do get it right. So we counter each negative thought with a positive one. And then what we then do, the third aspect here, is to practice it. And then hopefully what was a negative reflex or a negative obsessive circle of thinking can somehow get derailed or, or broken so the positive ones can slip in. And mm-hmm. it will take oh, yeah. some elbow grease on right. the child's part. But if we can do this with our child, it becomes now a coping mechanism. We teach children how to think positively. And, boy, does that make a big difference. Absolutely, and it leads into, um, you know, the next uh, point. And, you know, I really was thinking about this when I was reading it because, you know, I often say that parents are so focused on making their kids happy that they forget to teach them calm and self-regulation. And, mm. you know, teaching children to be self-advocates is huge because they're going to need to advocate for themselves, you know, the rest of their lives. But right. I think we often miss the point that you make here, um, in number three, which is to teach them positive self-care. Um, and it's, it's, when I was reading it, it was like, you know, I don't think that parents really realize that this is something that they need to learn early. You know, I do think that um, our, we've become a generation of very quick fixes, and the quick fixes are from things. You know, you know, if, if you hit a reset button, the quick fix of your game not going well, <laughs> you just click away from a button. You know, we have uh, the immediacy of many things in our life that technology gives us. But what we've lost, and it's such a cost to it, is just the very simple things in life that are involved with self-care. Self-care has become the new trend in this last year teaching people almost like Martha Stewart used to teach us how to just, you know, cook very basic recipes. Self-care has come into the forefront again as it should because we've lost these very natural, easy ways to learn how to be good to ourselves. And I teach children a very easy way, which is to just always think of their five senses, sight, touch, hearing, taste, and smell. If you can do things to feed any one of those senses, it becomes a self-caring experience. So for some kids, it may be, you know, cozying up with a nice warm stuffed animal to make them feel good um, or choosing healthy, flavorful foods, maybe walking in the sunshine, looking at nature, listening to music, playing, you know, with friends, it changes dopamine and serotonin when we self-care, when we take care of ourselves. And dopamine and serotonin are feel-good hormones. So when we teach children how to self-soothe, we're, teaching, we're actually giving them a gift that's going to last a lifetime, not to rely on things, but more on experience experiences and by doing that you know we help children again get in touch with their thoughts and feelings so it's a win-win all around absolutely you know and as you're talking i'm thinking because i've done hundreds of shows and i've yet really to find um any neurobiological disorder that um did not have sensory issues attached to Mm. it and i was just curious does do you find um children with depression tend to have more sensory issues or is it unrelated No, no, Marianne, you bring up an excellent point. In fact, many children who are depressed, I call them skin hungry. And what I mean by that is sometimes depression is such an isolating experience. Even you may be around, you know, your family who loves you. There's something about depression that's very deprivating. So when kids become aware of what depression is and how it affects them, you tend to find more of a sensorial leaning towards textures and hugs and touch, uh, scents and sounds. Um, you know, so it, it really is um, an experience of depletion. And research shows us, and I love these studies, because it shows us just how depleted depression takes from our brain, from our central nervous system, from muscle tone to sense of smell. They become depleted almost non non 
functional in some ways. So right. you bring up an excellent point. And, you know, the next statement feeds right into it is exercise, how important it is um, for these children, which is why parents, if, if your child is having behavioral issues or is depressed, just make sure that they are never punished by having recess taken away. Mm. Um, because that is off the table. These children need exercise. But tell us why. Well, like I said just before, um, depression is a state of depletion. And what happens with many depressed individuals, I remember this so vividly when I was a child. I had terrible fatigue. I was tired all the time. My friends would be playing outside, and I'd be in my room on my soft orange blanket with the windows up and the sun shining in on my bed, like almost sleeping. That's how tired I was. And what ends up happening is that, um, you know, the depletion from the fatigue and the physical symptoms of depression, it causes children to almost cocoon themselves. And what we have found, and I love this because I, 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 I read it somewhere, I can't remember where, they said that exercise is the most underused antidepressant in our, in our um, current century. And it's true. Right. You know, we, it's very you true. Know, kids tend to be more sedentary now. We sit much more. We're inside much more than usual. So the fatigue that comes with depression and the irritability and the physical complaints of like the aches and pains, they go away when kids exercise, when they move their bodies. If they're playing catch with the dog, if they're playing tag with their friends, if they're playing more organized sports, we know through data and research that exercise improves depressive symptoms. It's a no-brainer. If you're depressed, it can be hard to get yourself out there and move. Believe me, I know that. But once we get kids out there and they start to move, it's almost as if they're, you know, like a, you know, a, a dynamo. It really refuels them and helps reduce depression. It's, it's an amazing thing to see how exercise can be successful. Right, and it could be tailored for, you know, any child, even yoga. Um, the, yep. next, the next one you have is when too much of something isn't good, and you say it's vital for kids to learn how too much of anything can upset the apple cart. <laughs> yeah. I like to, you know, I, when I work with kids, and you know, it's funny, you know, we're, sometimes we chuckle here and there when we're talking about this very serious topic of depression, but I do have a light kind of bin when I work with kids with depression. So I like to teach them as much about their illness by saying, you know, too much of a thing can be bad. Too much sleeping, no good. <laughs> too much, too much mm -hmm. eating, no good. You know, too much irritability, no good. What I'm trying to do is to teach them to be aware so they can self-regulate. I know you used that phrase just a little bit earlier. We want, we want to teach them how to monitor their experiences, to understand the healthy limits. For instance, you know, I was a kid and I'm, and I'm an adult who still needs this. I need a nap every day because my fatigue is so much but I have to be mindful of it. I can't take a nap for more than a half an hour, otherwise then it interrupts my sleep, and then my sleep interrupts my depressive symptoms, and boom, we're in a terrible right. cycle again. So, you know, teaching children to learn their illness, not just depression, but any chronic illness, of what balance means. And, you know, kids love this because they really want to feel better. So when we tell them, you know, too much of something is no good, they like, laugh because we always hear that phrase, but then we put it into action and tailor it to what their each unique experience is. So for kids who are sleeping too much, nope, that's no good. If you're eating too much, nope, not good. You know, so it's all about balance. Right, and I, I like that you write in the article that it raises the stress hormone cortisol. And I've been saying for four years that parents need to go on the Internet and find out the function of the limbic system and the amygdala yeah. because it's going to explain so much to you and you're going to understand what's happening to your children. So do that, parents. Just go and Google the amygdala, cortisol, the limbic system, and you'll see that this is really a physical response. This isn't you right. know, all in, in their heads. Right. It becomes a real medical illness. The more parents can empower mm -hmm. themselves and learn. Mm. Right. And the, the next one I love is teaching kids to identify the difference between a bad day and a sad mood. That's got to be tough. <laughs> Actually, you know, it, 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 it is, but it's also, like I said, a gift once kids can master this. And I also remember this as a little kid and a teenager. Boy, you know, 
when I was at my worst and I was suicidal and in a really dangerous place, I really came to understand this this sentence very well. Bad days happen, but they don't mean that they're going to be continuously what you live with. So, you know, I try to help children not only understand their feelings, but to couch it in a 24-hour cycle. You know, a bad day today is not necessarily going to mean you're going to have a bad day tomorrow. It's about making the reality of what life really is understandable to them. So, you know, it doesn't ha- a sad moment doesn't have to ruin your whole day. Um, you know, a, a bad feeling. That's such great advice. It, do- it doesn't have to. It's a moment, and, and maybe there will be another two or three moments that are bad. But it doesn't have to be a continuous cycle. And it is hard. But, you know, tomorrow is a new day, is, is you know, one day at a time. Uh, these are very important things for kids to understand. And it will take a little bit, you know, of work. But, you know, again, it becomes something that makes sense. I always find when I work with kids, if it's simple and reasonable, they get it. Right. You know, it makes sense right. to them. And so, it, it gives you know, hope. It gives yes. hope. You know, it's funny because I don't know why, but I've for a long time just always had a mantra in my head that every morning I just, you know, put it through my head you know, throw it away, and I'm done with it. <laughs> but <clears throat> the past couple of years, um, with, you know, my, my other child being so um, sick mm-hmm. um, with the fibromyalgia, that I, every morning I just wake up and I say, whatever life throws at me, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like I put it in my head and then I put it out of my head, but I know that no matter, you know, what happens, this is going to pass. And I actually had written an article, um, you know, two steps forward, one step back still gets you ahead, the special needs <laughs> parenting, because I think uh. parents panic um, when you see a child falling back or if you see an exacerbation of symptoms. You know, the tendency is to, to panic, you know, okay, do we need a new medication? Do I need to add a medication? And sometimes you just need to take a breath. You're right. You're right. You're right. And I, and I love um, the, the whole feeling of or the, the um, embodiment that it will pass. You will get through right. it. I tell people all the time, you know, mm-hmm. your success rate has been 100% whether you realize it or not because you're here. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, my, my um, youngest daughter has a very severe case of juvenile fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, and she's, been, she's done better the past year and a half. But, you know, years back, she was, you know, in the intensive care unit. I mean, she oh was my. in horrific pain every day of her life. And she's oh. my hero because, um, you know, it, there were nights that she was just up in so much pain all night long, and she would say, well, tomorrow might be better. Oh, and I, I remember it. just saying, what courage, <laughs> You know, like what courage, but that's how they have to think. Tomorrow might be better. And, you know, if you think it might be, it will be, you know. Right. And you also add to that by saying, you know, whatever life throws my way, this too shall pass. And, you know, you you embody that positivity as well. And that's another important piece, you know, that, that if you're a family, to be a team where you can kind of move through the adversity and realize that you can get through it. Right. And that, you know, and, and, you know, having setbacks are just those, they're setbacks, you know, you're mm. going to go forward again. But the last one on the list um, is probably the most important. And it's, you know, how to teach children to let others know they need help. And we touched upon this, um, we didn't touch upon it, we went into in depth in um, the last interview. But this is different. This is really how do you get the children to that place that they're comfortable enough to ask for help. It's, it's such a hard thing for adults to ask for help. And this can be a monumental climb uh, for children to get to the top of this particular mountain. But I always think a lifeline teaching children how to express concern, even if they can't put the words together, I need help, Mom, or I'm struggling, Dad, you know, to just find a way, whether it's through writing, through touch. Sometimes, you know, I've had this with my daughter, just sometimes how she'll lean on me or touch her hand on my shoulder. I know she's struggling with something. And it's important for us to teach children ways verbally and non-verbally, just to let it be known that they're struggling. You know, and some children 
don't have any trouble with this. They kind of tell their parents everything. But depressed kids tend to have a hard time. Um, you know, they, they struggle with, their, with, with expression of it. And, um, you know, I, I just tell kids all the time, trust as much as you can. Be willing to be fearless when it comes to letting somebody know you're struggling because they love you even though you may not feel it or you may not feel deserving of it. It is a hard thing, but that's what talk therapy does. It, it teaches children, it gives them bridges and tools to how to communicate, and, um, which is why it's so essential for talk therapy to be a piece of the pediatric treatment. Um, but it's something that you know, does take time. I would say of all of the things on, uh, that we spoke about today, I think number seven is the hardest for kids. You know, they, Absolutely. They, they, they really do struggle with, you know, trying to share and let their parents know because they feel like sometimes they're letting them down or maybe they feel ashamed or maybe they feel confused or afraid. This is a tough one. And, you know, they, they're feeling these emotions so deeply that I think they assume that parents or teachers can see it. And, you know, maybe that's something that's important for the kids to know that, you know, you may be feeling it so deeply, but not, we, that doesn't mean that you can always see it. You know, right. Right. which is, you know, so hard for these kids. So, you know, in this last interview, and I want to thank you, this series has been incredible. And listeners, as I said, you can listen to all three interviews. Go to um, our website, www.thecoffeeclatch.com, and you will find the blog on depression in your child, and all three interviews are there for you to listen to. But um, for, for this interview, um, you know, we were talking about what kids need to know. And as I said, you have such a unique perspective, having lived it and then being able to use a career to help others. So now that we know what kids need to know, what do you want to say to parents? What do they need to know about their child with depression? Well, the one thing that I would want to stress is that as a parent, if you can help your child learn to live and live successfully in spite of their depression, that that would be my goal. I mean, I know that when I think about my mom and when she sees me, she'll say things like, I know you had a bad day or I know it was a tough, a tough month, but to be able to see you working and thriving, it, it just means so much to me. So I want parents to know that an illness like depression does not have to be um, a serious kind of um, worry if you can help your child learn early how to treat it and how to live successfully with it. And, um, you know, parents should, should try. I always, I always try not to say should, the shoulda, woulda, couldas, but parents should try not to feel shame or blame their genes or what didn't I do right. This is a medical illness, and sometimes the genetics are such that this is how it plays out. But be your child's best advocate, biggest fan, and learn, as Marianne said, as much as you can. Absolutely. Well, Deborah, I cannot thank you enough. This has been incredible, and I just want to make sure that everybody knows where they can find you. Um, what is your website? Where can they get your book? They can find me at drdebrasarani.com, and my book should be, Depression in Your Child should be in bookstores and online at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and um, I want to thank you for allowing me to bring this topic to light and sharing your time um, on what, what I consider to be you know, such a vital, a vital disorder nowadays that can be readily reduced with, with knowledge. So I thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. And listen, if anything comes up, any research that you think uh, parents and my listeners need to know, you just let me know and uh, we'll add to the series. You betcha. Okay. I have a really – anyone who's been watching this show and listen to the show um, knows about our series that just went off the charts, the Maverick Mind series with Dr. Sharif Lawrence, and I had um, my host, um, Angie um, – Oh, my God, just skipped my mind. Angie Eaton hosted the series. And it's about highly visual thinkers. They call them children with maverick minds and how they're often misdiagnosed with bipolar, ADHD, learning disabilities. Mm. And mm. they're really highly visual thinkers. And if you think about it, you know, 60, um, 70 to 90% of a child's school day is auditory. So mm. these children who are highly visual thinkers are lost. Now, 
we finished that series. It's on the website. It's unbelievable. But now we have another series because her daughter actually isn't a maverick mind. Her daughter has synesthesia. And Uh. synesthesia is when you can taste music, Mm. numbers appear as colors, your senses are all blended. Yes, and you have these, um, like, actually helpers in your head to organize life. And people are misdiagnosed with mental illness, severe learning disabilities, nonverbal, and they really have synesthesia. They don't even know they have it. That's right. Because they think everybody thinks that way. Well, we have a three-part series coming up calling Synesthesia and Your Child. We have the most renowned international experts coming on to talk about synesthesia, and mm. this, this series is just unbelievable. And um, that is going to start next week. So... Thank you for joining us. I'm very proud to present this series and uh, the next upcoming series. And um, thank you for joining us as I end each show. You are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent with us at The Coffee Clatch. We now have seven shows on the network. Check them out at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. Have a great night, everyone, and thank you again, Dr. Serrani. Thank you.